Hello, and welcome to First to 15, the official podcast of USA Fencing. I'm your host, Brian Wendell, and in this show, you're going to hear from some of the most inspiring, interesting, and insanely talented people in this sport we all love. First to 15 is for anyone in the fencing community, and even for those just checking out fencing to see what it's all about. So whether you're an Olympian or Paralympian, a newcomer, a seasoned veteran, a fencing parent, a fan, or anyone else in this wonderful community, this podcast is for you. With that, let's get to today's episode. Enjoy! Today's guest is three-time Olympian Daryl Homer. Daryl represented Team USA on the 2012, 2016, and 2020 Olympic teams. At those 2016 games in Rio, he earned a silver medal, and in doing so, became the first U.S. men's saber fencer to win an individual silver at the Olympics since 1904. Daryl's also been a fixture on the senior world circuit for more than a decade. This year, 2022, he qualified for his 11th senior world team, which means he gets to represent Team USA at the senior world championships in Cairo, Egypt. Daryl, welcome to the podcast. Hi, how are you guys? Yeah, thanks so much for for being here. It's it's a real treat and an honor to have to have you here. And I always like to ask how people first got involved in fencing. And I read an interesting story about you saw fencing in the dictionary and you yeah. saw some some fencers on TV and yeah. and then the rest of course is history. So like what was your origin story and what was it that made you say I kind of want to try that? Yeah, I mean, I, I first read about fencing I think when I was 5 in the children's dictionary. There was a picture of a guy in the on guard position. Mm -hmm. really cool and then at the time i know there are going to be a lot of young listeners but there was a movie the parent trap that had like this really famous fencing scene that i you know i like oh wow that looks really cool and there was mask of zorro with antonio Antonio banderas the ninja turtles all those things but i think the the final culmination of fencing for me was seeing uh, an at&t ad and promotion of the 2000 olympic games they were trying to have Mm -hmm. 2004 olympic games they're trying to pitch them for the new york city and they had Peter Westbrook, Aki Spencerell fencing for a New York Yellow Cab. And it was just super well done. And the crowd is clapping after. And the, the movements were really cool. And I ran to my mom and said, hey, remember, I wanted to try that out. And mm. the Yellow Pages found the club. And that's where I started. And so telling your mom you want to try this out and actually getting hooked on it are, are two separate things, right? There's people who try a new activity, whatever it is, one time, and then say, okay, let's try something else. So what connected with you in that first lesson? Yeah. So my first fencing practice was at the Peter Westbrook Foundation. And I just remember being in a room with people that looked like me and it seemed really familiar, but then also like the first feeling of picking up the weapon, I felt like it was like a wand or it just felt like something really empowering for me. Um, and I think I lost my first batch, match like five zero or something, but it was just really cool to get out there and just swinging it around a little bit. Yeah. And I think that that was really where the love for the sport grew. So I actually started in foil, which the Sabre probably three to four months after. And that's when I really, really, really just fell in love with it. I think at the time I was playing baseball, but dropped baseball and fencing became my main activity from 11 years old. What caused the switch from foil to Sabre? Because I was interested to see that when I was doing some research for this episode, that the, the foil was the first weapon that was in your hand. But yeah. obviously, you've had so much success in Sabre, so that was the right choice. But what was that switch? What was the, the catalyst for that switch? Yeah, so the interesting thing is I actually had been... So part of what the foundation did was they paired you with elite coaches. So I um, actually had been selected to enter the foil program. It was like a men's foilist, which there weren't many men's foilists at the time. The whole thing is that, you know, Peter being a saber fencer and Keith Ivan Lee, Keith Smart, Ivan Lee, 
Aki, all those guys being saber fencers and being like the kind of like the face of the foundation made it to like all like the cooler kids fence saber. So I remember I went to Peter and said, hey, I think it was 11 or 12. I said, hey, I really, really want to fence saber. And he's like, you know, saber people hit really hard because it was really small and skinny. And I was like, they can do it. And he was like, okay, but they hit really, really hard. And then, uh, (laughs) you know, so, but I just wanted to do it because that's what the cool kids and the older kids were doing pretty much. And I wanted to be closer to them as a kid. Yeah. Um, That's what got me into Sabre. Yeah. And so you you were talking about Peter Westbrook and that's for, for those who don't know, that's, he's one of the legends in fencing, right? Six time Olympian and done so much for the sport. When you think back on the fact that you had, for lack of a better word, access to him at, at such an early age. What did that do for, for you and your career? Yeah, to be honest, I think my interactions with Peter as a child were pretty limited. I had okay. much, much more interactions with Keith Smart, Ivan Lee, uh, my Jerry Gelman, who was working with the foundation as well. But just being around, like, you know, Yuri preparing Keith, Ivan, Aki for the Olympic Games and me being able to see that day to day, watch the lessons, sometimes take lessons right after them because we had the same coach was really, really powerful. And being able to be around Peter, Keith, Aki, people who had been Olympians in the highest level, kind of let me dream that I could be there one day too, right? Yeah. And I think that was like the biggest thing, like just being able to look at results because the old FC, they used to put all of the results on the wall. So you'd see mm-hmm. like, Keith got fifth in Budapest, Hungary, right? And I would go home and dream that I was like in Budapest, Hungary at like a wide <laughs> tournament, fencing and achieving the same type of results. And I think... Just having the access of being around those guys specifically as I got older and having a coach like Yuri and then having Peter as someone who could like oversee all of that was really, really powerful. Yeah, that's so cool. And it's interesting to think of now that we have like, you know, almost instant results that you were, you know, looking at a piece of paper on the wall saying, oh, wow, fifth place in this huge tournament. That's awesome. And they'd highlight all the fences from the club who went to the tournament. So, yeah. That's so cool. You've also said in interviews that, you know, when you first started at at tournaments, like Y12 tournaments and that type, you know, you were pretty far down at the bottom, maybe even like close to last place. But then by the time you were like 16, 17, you were earning medals at the Junior and Cadet World. So what was it that took you from local tournaments, not getting medals to being on the medal stand at, at the world stage? Yeah, I mean, I think it's all process, right? Okay. To learn how to win. I mean, I was very new to the sport when I was young. It's a huge adjustment period. But by the time I was 15, I really started to work in a way that was, you know, even more than Yuri, my coach at the time, more than Yuri demanded of me. I wanted to work for myself. I think a lot of my good friends now who are coaches kind of laugh at the fact that I think what I, I, I went to school in the city and a lot of them came from Jersey. So what I would do is we always wanted to like laugh when we got to practice. So I would get to practice like 45 minutes before they did and do footwork. And then when they got there, we'd all laugh and then we'd practice together. But I just kind of worked that into my routine that I just got there early and was really intentful about the things I was doing and focused on even when I was doing the wrong things, right? If But I just tried to do them the best way I could. And I gained a lot of confidence through doing that. So I would say it was really just like a deliberate practice, right? If I, like little things, like if I knew my steps were too big, I would try to fit four tiny, tiny advances in a really, really small box. Right? Hmm. Keep doing that over and over and over again for an hour maybe. But that's how I really got better. And I just try to copy the best fencers and steal things from them where I could. And if it worked, it worked. If it didn't, it didn't. But that was just always my kind of ammo. And it must have worked because by the time you were turning 19, I think that the summer you turned 19 was your first senior world team. 
what did it take to make that step up? Because I've heard other fencers say that the jump from junior to senior is is pretty massive. So what was it for you that did the trick? Yeah, I mean, I can even start before that. So, you know, cadet, I was third at the world championships. And there's mm-hmm. always leaps in my career, I've realized. But I was third at the world championships. The next year, I got completely smoked at the junior worlds my first year, right? Mm-hmm. Smoked. I was like, wow, this is an adjustment period, right? <laughs> to show you like how cyclical these things are, I um, I don't even think most people remember this, but I went to the Budapest World Cup in Junior World Cup um, the following year and got completely destroyed in the top eight to make the top four, right? I got destroyed to a point where it was like, wow, like that was really, really bad. The interesting thing is, you know, I think three weeks later, there was a Senior World Cup and I went to the Senior World Cup with my first Grand Prix internationally. And I actually made top 16 at it, right? It was like offense really freely. There was no pressure. Right after that, I went to the NCAA championships and won that. And then I went to the junior worlds and got third. And that was like kind of a catalyst for me kind of stepping into this role as a senior fencer. After that, I think I made a 32 or 16 or something like that after. And that's how I solidified the spot on the team. But I will say that the team prior was very strong. It was a team that meddled in Beijing. So it was a really, really big honor to train with those guys, to learn from those guys. Mm -hmm. I spent the summer before Beijing with them every day, training while they were in New York City, pretty much like willing to grab laundry for those guys if they needed it. If they needed five extra bouts, I'd fence five extra bouts. But mm-hmm. it was just an amazing experience to learn from them there. And also even my relationship with Keith, I was able to like, as he was in Beijing, and I see how insane this was at the time, I was like writing him about like, hey, like, what do you think about this bout and stuff like that? And he'd respond, right? What mm-hmm. did you do wrong in your bout when you lost to Pelé? Or how did you come back against Pazikov in this circumstance? We'd be having those conversations. So, you know, I'm very, very grateful that I just had the chance to learn from those guys while I was really young. Again, I was surrounded by Keith, Ivan, Tim Morehouse, Tim Hageman, all of these guys who were like really, really big legends. Jason Rogers, huge in the sport I could train with every day and just kind of look at, and Ben Igo, I'm sorry, as well, but just look at and pull kind of insights from them and take them to my career. That's so cool. And that's that's great that you had those types of role models to look up to. And so, so that kind of, to me, explains, you know, how you got there the first time. And then what's amazing is you, as we said at the start, is you, know, you kept coming back to the senior world team, right? Every single one since 2009, which is just this ridiculous level of consistency. To me, that's like making it to the World Series 11 straight seasons. You know, it's, it's crazy. So how have you managed to stay in the top four for so long? It's a system. Right. I understand how the points work. I understand how my process works. I understand how to manage the season. I mean, I really just try to focus on that. I normally start the season at the first or second NAC, right? You know, I generally try to build up from there. And by the World Cup season in May, I'm generally trying to peak into April, May, I'm trying to peak into uh, Zonal Zone World Championships. And that's just kind of been my, my framework. And that's the way I've worked. Now I probably incorporate a bit more rest in the, of the season. But yeah, I've just kind of built this system and I take it very, very seriously. I really just try to, I try my best every time. I try to give my all every time. And so now you're on the the 2022 team. And if you think about the 2022 version of Daryl Homer, how does he compare to the 2009 Daryl Homer? Oh, wow. I take way more detail-oriented. Okay. At uh, 18, you can eat a sausage and peppers at the NAC uh, while you're competing. <laughs> Eat well, but um, you know now my, my diet. I follow my diet pretty closely. You know I'm probably a bit more balanced. I probably relied more on my physique back then. I'm relying equally on my physique, my mind, my tactics, my experience now. So probably a lot more confident. 
I think when I was young, I had a bravado about myself um, that allowed me to perform a lot. But now I just have a lot of confidence and I know why I'm there and I'm just uh, here to get the job done, you know, and, and enjoy the competition that I have left. So, um, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I want to talk about some of the cool places that you get to go as a fencer. I, I think that's to me one of the one of the appealing parts about the the elite level is some of the experiences you get to have and the places you get to have them. So like this season alone, Italy, Spain, Korea, Hungary, Poland, Georgia, France. So is that life of travel and and everything as glamorous as it sounds or are these like 100% business trips when you when you go to some of these places? It shifts as you get older. You know, now um, I have more resources to stay a little longer if I need to or if I would like to. You know, we have our general circuit, which is like, you know, the Madrid, the Padova, the Warsaw. Uh, so, but then every once in a while, we get to go to a place like Cuba, right? We'll go to Havana, we'll go to Bar, we'll go to Santiago, Chile. And like, those are the experiences sometimes where it's like, I've got, like, I've gone to Madrid every year since I'm 18, right? So I'm pretty familiar with the way it flows. I have friends there now. Paris, same type of thing. But when we're able to touch down these, like, different destinations sometimes, it's really, really empowering and impactful in a way, too. Yeah. And one of those destinations, I have to imagine, was Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, that, you know, you don't go to every year. So, obviously, the, the 2016 Olympics, where you picked up the silver medal, what what was working at that tournament and what really clicked for you in that experience that helped you yeah. take home a medal? Uh, you know, I think Yuri and I had been together for 16 years at that point and we had a good understanding of, and we'd gone through multiple breakthroughs, you know, that level, the junior level, eventually the senior level, and then getting to that Olympic medal. So we were just in a really good place. It was the right timing. First of all, my talent, I was, I was young, I was strong. I was very confident. Um, I just come off the world championship medal the year before. So I just really understood the tactics of the time, the, the field really well. Um, and we prepared really, really well. Um, we came up with different solutions for different tactical situations I was having problems with. And then most importantly, I was very mentally focused and aligned for that competition. I think that's like, to anyone listening, I think, you know, as many less, lessons as you want to take or as many, as much workouts as you want to do, the main thing is like how mentally strong you are and how you can mentally prepare for competition. I think that is like the thing that I know now at 31 that I did not know at 18. I didn't know that hmm. at six, to be frank with you, right? Mm -hmm. It's really just a recent realization where it's like, I have to make sure my mental mindset is always in the right place, right? And I have to really manage that and be purposeful about that. So I think on that day, my mentality was perfect. I think, you know, I, if I'm going to be transparent with you, I think I meditated morning and evening every day for two months before that. You know, I was like super locked in. I had mantras. I had things I was saying to myself every day. Like it was a very, I got to know myself a lot through that experience and what it took to achieve. And like so many of these Olympic sports, it's four years of work for potentially a couple of minutes, right? Because there's no pools. So it's a couple of minutes, exactly. Yeah. So you, you've got to be locked in, right? So in a single elimination tournament where your first bout could be your last, how important is that mental game to make sure you're really focused and not, you know, heading home a, a few minutes in? I mean, it's the most important thing. And I say that because I remember 2014 World Championships. I was in amazing shape. Mm -hmm. amazing shape and you know i lost in the 32 i think i was up nine three or something like that lost in the 32 the olympics I actually was in very good shape and up nine uh in, say in tokyo i was up nine, three and just mentally could not handle the pressure and that was like a problem i'd had 
leading into that games. But that experience actually was the one that really had me flip and sit with myself and say like, wait, like this is the thing you have to focus on the most because you can do all the training you want, but if you go to the competition, your mentality is not right. It doesn't look like you've been training. <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. So, um, I just understood that. You know, another thing I'll say is that I think you have to find that for yourself. I think one of the things that um, I moved away from at 18, I did everything myself, right? As you get older, you get, as you get more experience, as you get more resources, you start to like outsource different things to different people. So I think one of the most interesting things that happened after Tokyo, I was on the phone with a sports psychologist and he was saying like the right things to me, right? But I'm listening to it and I'm saying to myself like, wait, you know yourself better than anyone. You have to commit to the process of sitting with yourself to figure this out. Like you can use people as resources, but no one else can come. The process of you having to explain to someone else who you are and how you function, it's worth it. It's just worth it for you to just do this yourself and sit with yourself and lock in with yourself in a way where, you know, you solve this issue, you solve this problem. So I think that was something that was really interesting for me to think about post the games. Yeah, I think that's really interesting and, and valuable insight as well. Switching gears a little bit, we're, we're recording this actually just a few days after you picked up two gold medals at the Pan American Senior Championships in, in Paraguay, a gold in the individual and a gold in the team event. And one thing that strikes me from that, in addition to your great fencing, was a, a photo you posted of yourself with some members of Cuba's team at that yes. event. And so tell me what the, the backstory is there and how you have been able to kind of connect with other people in our zone, other fencers in our zone at these international events. Yeah. So, you know, I don't, I don't know if a lot of young people know this, but Cuba has like a really storied fencing program. You know, I grew up again, looking at Peter, Steve Romano and all these guys talking about the Pan Am games and having to compete with Cuba. Awesome. Every time I'm able to see the Cubans in competition, they don't get to compete very often because of government financial difficulties. I don't know, but they literally compete once a year and it's usually Pan Am games or the Olympic games. Right. So I have a rapport with two of the, the top Cuban guys based on the Pan Am Games. We met there. Um, I had a lot of conversations. So it was just really cool to see him again and see the full team and, and watch those guys. It's such a storied program. It's such a, like a beautiful place. Havana was a really beautiful place to visit that, you know, anytime I can support and see those guys compete and do well, I'm, I'm always really happy to. So, yeah, it was a really, really, really cool experience. I'm actually getting messages from them as I'm back here. And nice. it's, it's, yeah, it's an awesome, it's an awesome place. It's an awesome story. And it's like, when I see it, when I know how much those guys train and how much they work and just the situation they're in, I'm, I just have so much respect, right. you know? That's so cool. And and the fact that you can kind of inspire them and, and be inspired by yeah, them at the just, same time. I mean, I, I get the sense that at these events, it's not because in my head, it would be like, okay, USA is going to be huddled together and, you know, focused on just their own performance at the tournament, but it really seems like there's this international exchange between the countries that makes it more than just about who's going to come out on top. Yeah. You know, again, we've known, I've known a lot of these guys <laughs> in the world, let's say in, even in Europe for 16, 17 right. years. So, you know, there are people you, you form really close friendships with like Max Hartung, who retired from Germany and I are very, very good friends. Some of the French foil team and I are very, very good friends. We started traveling to the Cadet and Junior World Championships together when we were 15 or 16. You know, so you do build these really, really long-lasting friendships. Actually, the women's saber coach, Alex Ochoki, like he and I have been friends since we were 11 years old. So mm -hmm. for him to be the head coach for women's saber and be traveling with us and me still be competing, it's like a really cool experience. That's awesome. But, you know, 
a lot you have really really long relationships through the sport which is which is one of the things i love about it the most yeah it's that's so cool and your long tenure and your success in the sport has also yielded you some some really cool partnerships you've you've worked with brands like toyota and nike and ralph lauren and a ton of others so how did those opportunities come about and do you have any advice for you know a younger fencer who wants to in the future maybe find that type of support to to help them on their fencing journey so at first of all i studied marketing in school or advertising so my mind works in that way when it comes to telling stories and i think that the biggest thing for any young athlete or for any athlete looking to monetize their craft is just to have a to, t- to tell a story right to do it creatively to do it in a different way but to be really authentic and true to yourself and i think what i pride myself on and what the partners that i've been able to work with um, and I have like the relationship we formed is that I'm able to authentically show who I am through their platforms as opposed to creating a fictitious image or something like that. So I think the main thing is to know who you are and really to commit to the craft. And, you know, frankly, like I worked the day after I graduated college, I started working in an ad agency. So I just say like, you know, if it happens, great, but it's not like the most important thing. I think sometimes we get consumed right. about the sponsorships or the media. And I think that's the bonus, right? It's really like the fencing, achieving the results. And then those things will come is how I always look at it. Yeah. And, and the fact that you have this marketing background also explains why on, on some of these campaigns, you are even listed as the creative director. So it's it's truly not just them coming to you and saying, stand here, you know, and smile. It's it's truly like you're yeah, involved it's collaboration in the sure. creation. That's so cool. And that, that kind of ties into my next question, which is, you know, the, the way that you've inspired different communities and you've been super passionate about bringing fencing into disadvantaged communities, especially. So just this is such a broad question, but I think it's important. How do we get more young people of color into fencing, into the sport? Yeah, I mean, I think we make it more accessible, right? Every I mean, it doesn't matter what background people come from. Every fencer I know, either a family member, in, they stumbled upon it like some random way, but it's never, we don't have sustainable access points for the sport. And I think that once we solve that, once we find a way, is it that we partner with YMCAs? Is it like, you know, once we find a sustainable way to get this sport in people's hands, I tell people like every kid wants to play with a sword. Like this should be the most popular sport Mm -hmm. in the world, right? Who doesn't want to play with swords, right? right? But I think it's one, making it more like getting sustainable entry points. But I think also it's like, what does... What does the version of fencing look like where it's like, like, what are the skills you can learn? Like basketball, right? You can pick up a basketball. You, you learn life skills through being on a team. You can go to the park alone and do it. But like, what's the version of fencing mm-hmm. that we have for that, right? It's so club driven and it's so, it's so expensive. It's like, it's very hard to, to do it even when you want to do it sometimes, right? I'll be honest with you. The amount of people I meet in New York who are like, I wanted to fence or my kids really, really want to fence. Where can we do this? Right. I just think it's about building the access access points out. Yeah, definitely. Opening as many doors as we can. Yeah. And then the supporting piece, like the foundation was incredible because it really, I think we paid $50 a year to fence every Saturday. Right. Hmm. And from there, if you're seen as talented, you were paired with a coach and that was covered as well. Right. But it's like, how do we create more opportunities where, you know, people can try the sport, be put into the sport and given a chance to succeed in the sport and invest in it to be in the sport. Yeah, that's that's well said. And and you're right, it, it, that has to happen to be able to grow this sport that we love. So finally, I want to 
talk about your legacy in the sport because you're you've talked about some of your role models like Keith Smart and Peter Westbrook and and a bunch of others and obviously they've made such an impact on you and part of their legacy is actually Daryl Homer right your success so what legacy do you hope that you'll leave on the next generation of fencers yeah i mean i think one i'd like to show people that it's possible to have to be successful and it's on the on the, the highest level right but I think beyond that, I'd want people to see like there are ups and downs in this journey too, right? And if you're committed to the journey, you always end up on top, right? You know, I, I definitely lose a lot more than I think I should. That definitely at times is like, ah, it's painful, but it's all the process, right? And I think that so many of our athletes stop so young. We stop at 23, 24 because of financial realities in the U.S. when it comes to fencing. But I'd love to see people say later in the sport, I'm really, really, really proud of the, my generation, Right. Because if you think about it, like Garrick Meinhardt, Miles Chamley Watson, Alex Masialis, Lee Kiefer, Courtney Hurley, we've been on teams together since we were in cadet. See us all still going has been really, really powerful. I'm just grateful. I'm grateful for the opportunity I've had to compete on a high level. I'm grateful that I've been able to inspire youth. There's a, a whole crop of young African American men and men's saber and women and women's saber that kind of look to me and like, hey, like, how do we do this? And that's really powerful mm-hmm. that I can mentor the other kids at the foundation. And that even on the national team, I kind of have this veteran role where like young guys like Mitchell, Saren <laughs> come to me with all these questions. But it's just nice to have been able to do that and to experience that. And we're talking about your legacy, but obviously you're still writing it. And so thanks so much for for taking a moment during what I know is a, is a busy time for you. And best of luck in, in Egypt at the Senior Worlds and, and beyond. Daryl Homer, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate you. Thanks for listening to First to 15, the official podcast of USA Fencing. We'll be back with our next conversation in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, you can stay up to date on all the latest fencing news by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And if you like this podcast, please help us grow and reach more people by leaving us a rating or review. Until next time, I'm Brian Wendell, and I hope to see you real soon out on the strip. Bye. Bye.